Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms now wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. All right. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen, and I know that Paisley is listening in Wisconsin. Macy is listening in Minnesota. Newman is listening in Atlanta, and those are some of our four-legged furry canine friends. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, good, good, good boys and good girls. Yes, may their human beings give them little scratches behind the ears right now. And you're wondering, in what is this reference to? Well, our friend Luke Moon has a new puppy named Lord Bruce of Moon Ridge, who's a German short hair pointer, serving as a companion for Margot Truffle Pig, who came into their family in January. And if you missed all that, it was in the first hour. And you should go back and listen to it later and share it with a friend. Um, MyFaithRadio.com is where you can get the podcast. All the links from everything that we talk about are posted in the show notes. Um, and yeah, it's available everywhere uh, that you get your podcast. So there you have it. Um, okay, so there's a, a headline that caught my attention this morning, and it is this. A California city's water supply is expected to run out in two months. So do you know where your water comes from? I mean, you know, not like ultimately where it comes from, the heavens above and the earth below. But where does it come from? Like, do you do you have city water? Are you on a well? What would happen if your well ran dry? Um, you know, do you have a something that's spring fed? Is there an aquifer you're dependent upon? Maybe you have a desalinization plant off the coast of where you live. Um, where does your water come from? When you turn the handle on the tap, where is that water? Where, what is the source of that water locally? Uh, the fire chief was the first one to notice what we are uh, talking about in uh, this city in the Central Valley of California. Uh, he said we were testing hydrants in August, and um, that's when he found out that the city of Coalingua um, was, was uh, facing a real problem. Um, the first fire hydrant, instead of shooting out water, shot out a foot-long block of compacted dirt. Yep. The second one ejected what he described as, you know, something emitting like from a can of body spray. Dirt, not water. School superintendent um, also, uh, you know, raising concerns um, about not only the quality of the water, but um, the, the flow available in public schools. So this is a city of 17,000 people. Um, and they're probably going to have to move. I mean, literally by the end of the year, their access to water is is going to be non-existent. And so you say, well, let's pray for rain. Yes, let's pray for rain. There is a mega drought underway. Um, and all of this that's going on in California and the southwestern United States got me, you know, searching around and thinking about biblical droughts and what we know about droughts from the Bible um, and none of us, you know, have been around long enough to, quote unquote, remember what happened in 850 B.C., but you can read about it in First Kings 17. Um, 
No one has been around long enough, nor can we remember what happened in 800 A.D., but that is when um, the tree rings in Arizona tell us that the last mega drought took place in the western portion of what we now call the United States of America. And so um, 800 A.D. here in the United States, 850 B.C. Um, in the Middle East, we're talking about droughts that lasted at least 10 years. And if you were to go back in time to <clears throat> uh, 1180 B.C., there is evidence in uh, the, the Sea of Galilee that there was a 50-year-long drought. Sometimes droughts last a really long time, and they ravage not just local communities, but entire regions of the world. Is the climate changing? Yes. Have we been here before? Yes. Are we praying for rain? Yes. Should we read First Kings 17 today? Yes. Where in the word are you today? I'm in First Kings 17. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Dr. Brett Nix is back from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find him at brettnixmd.com. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Tom. How are you this morning? I, I am well. I am well. Hey, let's start with this. Um, you know, we might say what's the best time for breakfast, but let's ask a different question. What's the best time for dinner? I, I feel like the early bird diners are right. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's fascinating you bring this up. We talked about this before. Timing is everything. And we talked about this weird study area that we call chronobiology. What does it mean? It means the timing of life, chronobiology. Well, you asked the question about when is the right time to eat, but dinner specifically. And we've talked about this issue of intermittent fasting. Some people say, hey, is this a real thing? Does this really matter? Well, there's another study that's just come out. Now, it's small. It looked at a small number of patients, all of whom had issues with uh, their body weight. Uh, they were all overweight. They had issues with blood pressure and diabetes. And they asked the simple question, hey, if we change up your timing, will it make a difference? And what they said is, are you able to eat over a 10-hour window? Meaning, let's say you have breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning. That would mean that dinner would fall somewhere around 6 o'clock. So, yes, that early breakfast piece is what they're, pardon me, the early dinner piece is what they're talking about. And what they found is for those that followed their guidelines, where they ate in a 10-hour window, no longer were they having midnight snacks, no longer were they eating late into the evening, that for those in this study, they had a decrease in their blood pressure. They had a dec decrease in their overall weight with the same level of consumption of what they were eating. Uh, and for those who had diabetes issues, their glycemic control, their ability to manage their blood sugar improved as well. So it gets into the thing that we know to be true, which is our bodies need time to reset. That's why God gave us night. That's why we, we know that our bodies need rest. It's the ability for us to, to go ahead and reset and recalibrate for a new day. Uh, this study just supports that even more. All right. So um, if you're like me and you get up at 4 a.m. and you might have your first food around 6 a.m., then you're going to have to have your dinner at 4 in the afternoon. Like, right? It's going to have to be early bird for me. But people who can wait until 8 a.m. to eat the first thing of the day, then they can still have dinner at 6. Like, right? This is not crazy. It's not like we're saying, hey, you got to 
You got to eat, you know, you got to eat everything that's caloric between, you know, 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. No, no, it's reasonable. 8 a.m. and 6 p.m., these 10-hour windows, right? That's right. And, you know, and even if it's not 10 hours, the study, if you look at it, and they have some other studies that have followed, which is a, we shouldn't be eating over a 24-hour cycle. We shouldn't be having a lot of process issues uh, in the late evenings, especially if, you're, if your sleep capacity is not so good. But if it's 11 hours, you're still going to have benefit. What they're saying, though, is it's, it, if you can, is to extend the period of fasting from your last meal of the day until the first of the next day and find that balance so that you're not having a large caloric intake. You're not eating a large percentage of it at night. Interesting. All right. And how about the best brain food for kids? Well, I'll tell you, I think the best brain foods for kids are the same for adults. And what we end up finding is really fascinating. You look at a lot of these nutritional studies, and I hate to say this for those who are just talking about breakfast and you're waking up. Uh, if you're looking in front of you and you have a donut or a cupcake or a cinnamon roll and a cup of coffee, that's probably not it. Just saying. Not it. Uh, but, that not being, it. That, but that being said, a cup of coffee is not going to be bad. You'll find some value propositions there. Uh, but when we look at the superfoods for kids, we're no, we know what it's not. It's not processed foods. We're talking about things that have multivitamins uh, in them and, and a lot of these micronutrients like folate and zinc, along with the normal vitamins, vitamin A and B12 and D, and again, a blend of antioxidants. So I'll be honest with you. For me, one of the best things that I do, and this is almost on a daily basis, uh, I'll get up early. I'll have some quiet time. I'll exercise. And while my coffee is brewing, I make myself a smoothie in the morning. And it's whatever is fresh and whatever is available. And then I typically buy either bags of kale or bags of spinach and just throw them in the freezer. And I make a smoothie in the morning with a banana. I'll throw in, okay, so we just finished blueberry season and I have gallons of blueberries in the freezer. So I take blueberries with a banana. I'll throw in some kale. And depending on which direction I'm going, I may add in a scoop of chocolate powder and a little bit of milk to go ahead and you know make it a little bit more flavorful from a chocolate perspective. Or I may go down the berry route and add in some type of a juice base or otherwise. I make this for myself. I also make it for my kids and add in a little bit of Greek yogurt for protein. That hits all of the buttons that we're talking about on these superfoods. And you know, I don't know if it's helping my kids in school or whatnot, but I'll tell you what, I still feel great. Uh, and then for those who say, hey, I'm not a smoothie person, keep in mind breakfast items like eggs have a lot of the essential fats and proteins that we're talking about. Uh, for those who are fish-based people, uh, a fresh salmon that you cook uh, has an amazing amount of uh, omega-3s and some of the essential uh, micronutrients as well as uh, a high quality amount of protein that you'll get. And then again, the typical things that people say, hey, I like to go ahead and, and, uh, and enjoy uh, different types of vegetables, but I really like to make hummus. Well, great. Take some garbanzo beans, blend it up with a little bit of olive oil, some garlic, maybe a splash of lime, and you made your own fresh hummus dip without all of the additives that you might find in the store. These are the type of things that if you jump into, these are the superfoods that not only help your kids, but it helps yourself, especially as we age. Yeah, I was at a restaurant um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they now have um, breakfast salads on the menu. And I thought to myself, well, you know what? It's about time. It's about time. So there you go. Hummus with some grilled veggies. That is a, that's delicious. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, eggs are friends with all kinds of veggies. I like to make a frittata if I'm going to serve the whole family. You know, you can put a lot of veggies in there um, with that. I love the idea of a smoothie because in addition to being delicious, you can drink it through a straw on the way to school if necessary. So all those really, really good things. All right. Hey, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix here in just a moment. Is there a love hormone? And if there is a love hormone, 
Can it help us regenerate heart muscle after a heart attack? Hmm, I don't know, but he's going to tell us. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do every morning on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. I don't want you to miss any of it. So check out the free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. One of the things I would like for you to consider is becoming a Faith Radio ambassador. We talk about walking our faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. Well, that's because we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. You can become a Faith Radio ambassador today and help us get the word out to others about this and other programs on the Faith Radio Network. Uh, We will supply everything that you need to share with others, and you can sign up to be a Faith Radio ambassador at MyFaithRadio.com. He put that hunger in your heart. He put that fire in your soul. His love is the reason. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find uh, Brett and visit with him at BrettNixMD.com. All right, Brett, is there a love hormone? And if there is a love hormone, can it help us regenerate heart muscle after a heart attack? You know, that is a great question. And I'll tell you, it's fascinating to see how God creates our body to heal itself. But there's something about coming into community with other people that really seems to add value to our lives. And I know earlier in the conversation this morning, you were talking about the value of dogs and pets, uh, specifically dogs in that process. Well, We'll circle back to that in a second, but this drug that you're talking about, this love hormone, is called oxytocin. And some people say, hey, wait a second, I've heard about this. Uh, you know, whether you've been pregnant or have known someone who has, you'll hear about oxytocin in the period of childbirth and around the concept of breastfeeding. Well, studies have been looking at this specifically to say, hey, when somebody has a heart attack, what really happens when we have death of those heart cells? And what are the things that might well, there was a research that said, in order for these heart cells, and we call the myocardium, to start healing itself, there may be something related to oxytocin that we've seen in some of the other areas uh, during, as stated before, pregnancy and, and, and breastfeeding. And what they found is, with certain levels of oxytocin, now oxytocin doesn't last long, but with certain levels of oxytocin, you're able to regenerate these heart cells that have died. They're able to go ahead and to start to, to, to remodel and to reform and this might actually be allow, be allow the body to go ahead and heal itself. So what does this mean? When you have family members where you're talking about things that, uh, that bring, bring, bring happiness to you, bring delight, when you give someone a hug or have a warm embrace, the levels of oxytocin go up very quickly. Now, they only last hours. So there is a process of having a repetitive process, the value of relationship. Well, we also know that it's to be saying the same as with pets. If you have a dog or a cat when you come in, the level of, of love and, and, uh, and approach when you come in the house can... And so this issue with oxytocin, more to come, but man, this looks great. That's so exciting. All right. And then um, you, um, you sent me this information about colonoscopies. Are they really that effective? Wow. So, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, if anybody that's listening... You- at age over 45, uh, we know about this thing that we call the rite of passage. And it's not about aging, it's about colonoscopy. And in the U.S., colonoscopy has been the gold standard for early detection of, uh, of uh, colorectal cancer. And we've heard lots of things, whether it be Katie Couric 
uh, having the crusade after her husband had colon cancer and died from it about early process issues. Well, the, the content around this is recognized in the U.S. more than 15 million colonoscopies are performed per year. Well, a recent study that's being published right now in the New England Journal of Medicine found, uh, and this is a Nordic study, so recognize we're talking about Norway, we're talking about Sweden, we're talking about northern Poland, so a different patient population. They found that in this study that only about 18% decreased risk over those who are not having colonoscopy. Now, why does that number uh, seem small? Because in the U.S., we believe that number to be two, if not three times higher than that as far as the risk reduction. Now, we're, we're comparing apples and oranges. The U.S. population is not as healthy. Uh, we have a lot more processed foods that we eat. Uh, so we have an increased risk related to colon cancer in that space. But here's the thing. Uh, one of the aspects of what it is is it may not be as good as we think it is, but we're also not necessarily looking at all of the other tests that have come about. Some of you have, may have had stool tests that look at blood. Some of you may have had stool tests that specifically look for cancer cells. All of these tests are increasing in frequency and in the quality by which they detect. Does that mean colonoscopy is out? Absolutely not. It is now going to be a part as we continue to study to figure out who is the right person to have which studies. If you have a family history of colon cancer, you're probably looking towards a colonoscopy and those other screening tests. And there are other things as well. CT scans are now being used at uh, certain stages in process of evaluation. But the bottom line is this. The colonoscopy isn't going away, but your doctor should be able to delineate what is the right test and the right timing for you. Okay, so I think since the last time you and I talked, I have uh, not only had a, um, a melanoma diagnosis, but a surgery related to that, and I'm, and I'm already recovered, and my, thank God, pathology report is, you know, clear margins all the way around, nothing left anywhere. But I will say... Um, and I know you're celebrating with me, but I will say that um, it's a wake up call whenever it happens. And I'm now going to, you know, much more dutifully see my dermatologist. Well, I'll tell you, Carmen, one thing that people don't realize, and I think we talked about this maybe a couple of months back, uh, unknowing about this. And congratulations. I'm glad to hear you have clear margins. Uh, but skin cancer is the number one cancer in the U.S. Uh, and so we hear a lot of things about different types of cancer, breast cancer, uh, cervical cancer, colon cancer. Uh, but we have to be mindful about that. And so, you know, please recognize when you're looking at somebody, if you notice that they have a mold that's changed, if they've got discoloration on their skin, if there's areas of skin that is that is flaking, you know, the things that we see with sun exposure and otherwise, uh, it's important to have that. And again, another important reason why when you go and see your doctor for your annual exam, to have them examine your skin. And if they see something of concern, make sure that you go see a dermatologist so they can either biopsy it or reassure you that it is okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, we have like a, a couple of minutes left. Tell us what we think we're learning about the signatures that might point to risk for long COVID. Yeah, boy, you know, long COVID is fascinating. Another study just came out that says at six weeks, six weeks after your COVID infection, uh, they can do blood tests that might identify who's at risk and what that risk might be for long COVID. This is a means of, if you will, finding the signature for long COVID. At this point, it doesn't just necessarily detect what type of symptoms you're going to have and how long it will last. Uh, but another piece to the puzzle in this long COVID signature issue, uh, I think that this is an important study. And I think what we will find is when people have this, uh, we'll find that this is going to be immune system driven. And those that have autoimmune challenges will likely have this signature, number one. And those who have at-risk health issues, I will, I will be surprised if those that have diabetes and other areas that cause inflammation in the body uh, are not part of this signature profile. 
Um, but this will be an important piece, and it'll have everything to do with how your body's immune system works. But more importantly, it will allow us to predict when you might be able to recover and what symptoms you might have. Yeah, I think that um, I appreciate, Brett, how uh, how often you have sort of turned our attention to long COVID because I do think that there are those who, um, you know, shake their heads and do a little bit of, you know, like that's not a real thing, but it's as much a real thing as Lyme's disease and fibromyalgia and other kinds of mystery diseases that are really hard to, um, you know, to pinpoint because there's such a diversity of symptoms um, and those of us who maybe, you know, had COVID but don't suffer long COVID, you know, we become suspicious that those people are just laying around. And that's not what's going on. No, it's difficult. And I'll tell you, when we look at this, for those who are listening that have anything in that rheumatologic issue where you have a rheumatologic disease or process, what you will recognize is the vast majority of the time, there's not a perfect test. It is a test of probability that says, you know what, you've got these autoimmune challenges and your numbers are elevated, but we're not really sure what this means. Uh, that whole area of autoimmune inflammation, autoimmune challenges, uh, that is still a new area of study, even though it's been around for a while. As our tests get better, we'll understand it more. Uh, but we have to recognize, just like if we went back hundreds of years and we said, goodness gracious, we have people who've had rheumatic fever. Some people sequel to a rheumatic fever issue that affects the heart, affects different aspects of the vascular system, and others are completely immune to it. Their body doesn't respond the same. Those are the same types of things we didn't understand then that we understand now. I suspect long COVID and a lot of these inflammatory issues that you bring forward are ones that we will understand better in the future. Uh, and in that time, as we start understanding the genetic process better, may be able to go ahead and intervene uh, where the immune system is taking over. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right, we're talking uh, with Brett Nix. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find him at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, particularly if you are um, a, a professional in, in any realm of, um, of health care um, or, or dental care, which I include in healthcare now. Um, you guys need to be checking out what's going on at cmda.org. There's great resources for you there, great community, um, equipping, um, all kinds of things. So check that out. And if you want to visit directly with Brett, you can do so at his website, brettnixmd.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Do you remember the Ice Bucket Challenge 2014? Millions of us took part in the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Um, People all over the country, celebrities, friends, family, dumped ice on their heads to help raise awareness and ultimately funds for research related to ALS. One of the research projects that was funded through the millions of dollars that was raised through the Ice Bucket Challenge was um, on a drug called AMX. 0035. It was imagined by two Brown University students in a dorm room the year before the Ice Bucket Challenge. AMX 0035 has now been approved for the effective treatment of ALS. I mean, the cure of ALS is still maybe a long ways off, but research um, continues. And so thank you. If uh, if you dumped ice on your head uh, in the Ice Bucket Challenge a number of years ago, there are people suffering with ALS today who have a new treatment, FDA-approved treatment available to them. FDA-approved treatments and mystery illnesses and how we, um, how we treat one another when people are suffering um, in ways that 
Well, the medical community still still finds quite mysterious. Yeah, we're going to talk about Lyme's disease, and we're going to talk about Lyme's disease with Ross Douthit. You know him as the New York Times bestselling author and opinion columnist. You're also now going to learn that he is just regards himself as a sick person. We're going to talk about all of the challenges related to Lyme's disease, not only um, in terms of getting the help that you need, but in terms of the deep places you have to go. The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery, up next with Ross Douthit. Ross Douthit uh, is a brother in Christ. He joined the New York Times as an opinion columnist in April 2009. His columns appear every Tuesday and Sunday. He also writes on Substack, which I highly recommend. His books include The Decadent Society, uh, which he published in 2020, um, and a range of, of other titles as well. I loved Bad Religion, How to Become a Nation of Heretics, or How We Became a Nation of Heretics in 2012. Um, but his most recent book is called The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. It's now been out for a year, and Ross is joining us to talk about it today. Ross, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. So I want to start with this. Um, like, literally, how are you feeling today, like right now? And then, <laughs> and then is that connected or disconnected from how you felt yesterday and how you expect to feel tomorrow? I'm I'm feeling pretty good right now. Um, I just dropped my kids off at school, uh, so that that's always a feeling a feeling of relief. But generally, you know, day to day these days, I I usually say I'm about ninety five percent, which means that there's fluctuations from day to day. I'll have you know weird pain in one part of my body or another for an hour here or twenty minutes there. Um, but it's very much within a manageable range. Um, and that is a radical improvement over how I felt six, five, four years ago uh, when I was in the worst of the experience that I write about in, in the book. Yeah, so The Deep Places is a memoir of illness and discovery. Um, one of the descriptions is uh, a story about chronic illness, real estate disaster, scientific controversy, religious faith, fringe medical treatment, lab leak conspiracy, well, and a few other things. So um, Ross has had an experience um, that he shares in this book, um, and, and he does so, you know, with the skill of a writer who is able to take you into um, not only a room and an experience, but his own body and the experience of um, of what he has endured. So I highly commend it. The Deep Places um, is the book. Ross, uh, talk with us about or take us back to the spring of 2015. Um, you know, you've got this dream house. I want you to walk us around there. You just find out you're about to have your third child. You literally experience this pain in your neck. And then you describe eating what it was your last ordinary meal. Can you kind of take us to that period of time? Yeah, so so this was sort of a life peak for us. We had we lived in Washington D.C. my wife and I, but we were both from New England, and we always wanted to move back to New England. And 
I, in particular, had this fantasy of buying a farmhouse in the country and, you know, with acres and fields and barns and stone walls um, and, you know, sort of raising my kids in touch with nature, all, all these kind of ideas that people who live in cities tend to nurse. And we actually went for it. Uh, we sold our row house, our cramped little row house in Washington, D.C., and we bought a 1790s farmhouse. Uh, and as you said, just at that exact moment, my wife got pregnant with our third child. Um, and it was basically like, well, we had this fantasy and we had made it real and it was going to be amazing. Uh, and instead, in basically the weeks while we were still in Washington, sort of planning the move, but had already maybe fatefully done the home inspection and wandered through those fields, um, I got sick and it started as neck pain and progressed to this sort of weird full body meltdown where, you know, my bowels turned to liquid, my throat felt like it was closing up, I had phantom heart attacks, I had pain everywhere. Um, and it just sort of escalated and escalated over this, over that summer without any doctor in Washington being able to figure out what was wrong with me. And by the time we, instead of, you know, going north in triumph, dragged ourselves <laughs> to this, this farmhouse, um, I had lost 45 pounds. I was sleeping about two hours a night. Uh, I was taking, you know, eight different medications that the doctors were just throwing at me, sleeping pills, Xanax, antidepressants, you know, just about anything. Um, and it was only when we got to Connecticut that I started seeing doctors who said, well, you know, if you have a mystery illness and you live in New England, or maybe you just bought a house and wandered its overgrown grounds in New England, there's a good chance that you have a tick-borne illness uh, like the sort of famous name for a small town in Connecticut, Lyme disease. All right, so if you're listening right now and you've just joined us, we're talking with Ross Douthat. Um, you know him uh, from the New York Times. He's an opinion columnist. If you don't know him, you should. Um, he's one of my favorites. I read his Substack regularly um, in addition to being a paid subscriber to the Times in order that I can read what he writes there as well. Um, we're talking about his latest book, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Um, and at one level, Ross, I want to say that this, you know, this book is a departure for you. But because I am also um, familiar with a decadent society and have appreciated um, that you are able to draw parallels between these two, there are some affinities between uh, the deep places and the decadent society that I'd love for you to wander around in. Because I want to have the personal conversation, but I also want to have the the mystery illness, we're all sick systemic conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, The Decadent Society was, is a book about uh, how rich, powerful societies get stuck, basically, how they become stagnant, how their political systems become gridlocked, um, how growth slows down and culture goes in circles and all, all of those kinds of things. It's a book about sort of stagnation and sclerosis and argues that this is one way to understand what's wrong with America today. Um, and if you look at the world of, you know, sort of how the American medical system interacts with chronic illness, uh, meaning not just Lyme disease, but everything from chronic fatigue syndrome um, to fibromyalgia down now to uh, long, long term COVID people who have who have the get the coronavirus and don't get better. 
you see, I think, a version of what I'm calling decadence, where you have a sort of system trying to solve a problem, but just sort of going endlessly in circles, getting stuck in failed ideas and failed failed perspectives, um, even as people are suffering terribly and sort of begging for help that the system is unable to provide. And Lyme disease is an inter interesting case study because it was discovered in the 1970s. Uh, there was sort of, you know, the first people probably were getting sick earlier than that. It's a it's disease probably spread by suburbanization. As you build suburbs, people come in contact with deer and the ticks they carry. Um, but basically, early on, people figured out that if you treat Lyme disease with antibiotics, uh, a lot of people who have it get better. And that was true then, and it's true today. But that became then the paradigm through which the, you know, the worldview basically through which all cases were analyzed and understood. So you're supposed to take four weeks of antibiotics. And if you get better, great. And if you don't get better, well, we're sorry, <laughs> you don't fit inside our understanding of the disease. And there's very little or nothing we can do about about it. And maybe maybe you don't have Lyme disease anymore. Maybe you do, but we're helpless to help you. Um, but either way, the medical system basically had this initial this initial correct understanding that the disease is a bacterial infection and you need to treat it with antibiotics and then got stuck there even as tens and tens of thousands of people got sick in the northeast initially but the disease spread beyond the northeast there's a big pocket in minnesota and wisconsin it's sort of weakest in in Ohio and Michigan. It sort of skips over <laughs> that part of the Midwest. Um, but the disease has spread to the point where there are now, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases. Millions of people have been infected with it at some point. And there are just tens of thousands of people stuck with symptoms that don't go away. And in order to get help, you have to go to one degree or another outside the system into terrain where, you know, there's a lot of weird things going on. And some of them are <laughs> crankish and quackish, and some of them seem crankish and quackish until you try them. And then they actually help you. And you have to revise your understanding of reality, which I did a certain amount of in the course of this experience. But, but basically, you have, with chronic illness, a sort of inner system of official medical knowledge that is correct as far as it goes, but doesn't cover a lot of reality. And then you have a lot of wild ideas sort of circulating on the fringe that help a lot of people. Some of them are kind of crazy, but they never sort of they never sort of break through back into institutional medicine. Mm -hmm. So you, these worlds are sort of permanently divided. They each have their own vices and their own problems. Um, but we haven't been able to integrate them in ways right. that in ways where if you go to see your normal general practitioner, your family doctor, and you have Lyme disease or some other chronic illness, and it doesn't go away immediately, they aren't going to be able to help you. Um, and that's a strange state of affairs. So we're talking with Ross Douthat, and if you um, or someone you love suffers from a chronic illness, let me just tell you that The Deep Places, which is a memoir of illness and discovery, um, Ross very faithfully walks you through his own experience and, yes, introduces you to lots of things that you might consider a little weird and wacky, but some of them really worked. So we're going to talk about healing, and we're also going to talk about um, Bill Maher asking Ross 
why God didn't heal him since he's a believer. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Talking with Ross Douthat, we're talking about um, his latest book, The Deep Places. You should also be reading what he is um, writing in real time, both at the New York Times and on his Substack. And so we're talking um, about his chronic illness. And Ross, let's talk about that word chronic. Um, First of all, let's talk about substantial healing that you've experienced. And then the question asked, which is, you know, you're a believer. You prayed for healing. You know, why doesn't God just heal? Um, which one, which question do you want me to answer? Yeah, you know, pick, pick whichever one you want, right? Because it's chronic, right? I'll work my, I'll work, I'll work my way backwards, right? Because yeah, I went on, I went on Bill Maher's show and that was, you know, that was the, the concluding question, um, because Bill is of course a famous, a famous atheist. Um, and I think my answer to him was. You say that, you say that, but there in that moment is this way that he asks you the question and the way that he looks at you and clearly the way that he loves you as a friend where you are, where there is this like, there's like an honest seeking in his question. And so I thank you for being faithful in that moment and faithful in, in that relationship because, you know, I'm, I'm always holding out hope that God is doing something beyond what we could even imagine. So I just, well, I, so I, I do. I think I well, I, I, I appreciate it. I do. I think that people who are what you might call famous atheists, as opposed to people who are just indifferent to religion, the famous atheists do have a relationship with God. It's a combative, angry, frustrated. I can't possibly believe in you kind of relationship, but it is more of a relationship, I think, than the truly indifferent person has. And that's part of why religious believers are always sort of interested in figures like Bill or the late Christopher Hitchens, um, I think, because not just because we want them to convert um, or believe, but also because there is something that the believer and that kind of atheist have have in common, this kind of wrestling with God. And this is, you know, sort of connects to to the question he asked me and that you asked me, right, which is that, you know, in confronting an experience of suffering like this, and, you know, I'm in my early 40s, this was the first time in my life I'd had to deal with sustained physical suffering, like really transformative day in and day out. Your body is not your own. It doesn't work for you. It's here to punish you physical suffering. Um, And I have had healing. I have, you know, as I said at the start of the show, I'm in pretty good shape now. It took years and years and years, but I did get mostly better. Um, But I wasn't healed by a bolt from the blue. And to the extent that I had, and obviously I begged for it, (laughs) 
at, at various times and places every day at various times. Um, and to the extent that I got anything back from those to those sort of desperate prayers, it was usually a kind of sometimes I almost call it like a wink, but that that makes it sound sort of, you know, sort of jokey, which it wasn't really, but more like more like signs that God was there and listening and heard me and that whatever I was going through, I was going through for a reason. And that I think clearly has to be part of the Christian answer to the mystery of suffering, right? That suffering is not just an emptiness, an empty signifier that, you know, that you're just trying to escape from. And if God was truly good, he would liberate it from you immediately. There has to be a reason that suffering is allowed into people's lives. And, you know, Christians, we, you know, we have these sort of clever philosophical arguments about how, you know, evil is necessary for, you know, it's necessary for people to be able to choose evil uh, in order for us to have free will, in order for us to choose God and so on. Um, but suffering is a little different. Suffering, especially in the context of a religion whose central drama is the crucifixion, you know, suffering isn't just there to sort of vindicate our free will suffering is there to transform us i think it's something there for us to go through and respond to and become a new person on the other mm -hmm. side um and i'm not, i don't think i you know became you know the ideal new person the new person that god would absolutely want me to be um, but I learned things about myself and about reality, about the world, uh, about what I can bear and what I'm capable of and what I need from other people and what other people who are suffering need from us that I had, you know, no, no sense of beyond the sort of abstract and intellectual before I went through an experience like this. And that that I think is how you have to you have to deal with it. And, you know, it's also I mean, the reality is that I was fortunate i mean five five a few years of terrible pain five years of suffering um people go through worse things than that i may go through something worse than that so you have to obviously keep that in mind too as you're going through this right there's a sort of a fear of god that comes into this that's yeah a sort of healthy respect for what you know what what might what might be asked of you asked of you next um, but yeah, that's, that's the fundamental reality that you have to, you have to figure out in suffering, not just when God is going to heal you. Um, but also what, you know, what is being asked of you? What kind of story are you part of right now? Because that's how Christians have to think about their lives. It's a story that God is writing and you're trying to, in effect, play the appropriate part so good it's so good um ross uh thank you so much i i wanted to find time to talk about the other person in the illness i really appreciated what you wrote on your Substack about your wife um and for those of you who are readers and appreciate good writing abigail tucker is also a writer in the oh. dalset house in the dalset household her book mom genes inside the secret science of our ancient maternal instinct um is also a book that was written uh, in their house at the same time. And so I think when we think about who walks through these experiences, it's not just the person 
who's experiencing it in their physical body. But, you know, as as two become one in marriage, right, she experiences this as well. And so your reflection reflections on that, I, I deeply appreciated, Ross. So, yeah, I don't know that we have really time to unpack. Yeah, that, I mean, but- I, I, I would. Yeah, I would just say that's part of the reality, too, that you are there's a, a ripple effect from any illness people around you are caught up in it they suffer in their own ways as well and they also have to learn whatever it is you know whatever whatever cross they're supposed to carry in these kind of illnesses and it's with the last thing i'd say is just that with chronic illness especially the challenge for both the sufferer and the person outside is figuring out what is real here right you know there's a lot of skepticism all about chronic illness so much medical uncertainty And one thing I just was trying to do in the book is, you know, whatever you think of, you know, the hard scientific foundation of these things, the reality of the challenge is something that everyone should grasp and understand, I think, to help themselves and others. So helpful. The Deep Places. Ross Douthat is the author. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thank you so much for joining us. You can get the show notes and links to everything that we discussed during Um, during this hour online at myfaithradio.com or wherever you download your podcast. This has been Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.